listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. Garden song means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day in the middle of June. 82 degrees right now and uh, much balmier, mellower weather than we've been having for the last three days, going up to a high today of 92. And that's cooler than it was. It was 102 yesterday. 57 yeah. degrees will be tonight's low, which is several degrees below what it was the previous few nights. Tomorrow, Friday, oh, what's the date today, Lois? June. What is the date today? We're supposed to say this the date. The 14th, isn't it? Today is June uh, 13th. 13th. June 13th, 2019, if you happen to be listening to the live broadcast. So tomorrow, Friday, will be 88 degrees. Doesn't that sound nice? That sounds cool. Friday night, 57 degrees. Saturday, 88 degrees. Saturday night, 56. Sunday, warming up again, 93. Sunday night, 62. And a little hot spike on Monday and Tuesday, where Monday is going to be 98 and Monday night's going to be 67, Tuesday's going to be 100, Tuesday night's going to be 64. But this is a brief one compared to what we just experienced here because Wednesday will be back down into the mid-90s. So we've got a cool trend with a lot of Delta breeze coming in for the next few days, another spike of hot temperatures back into the Delta breeze, and so on. Our typical summer pattern here, we just up and down and did up and go down. through three days over 100 degrees. Mm -hmm. So we've had three so far this summer, and uh, we get anywhere from last year, we only had two all summer. Previous year, we had 12 to 15, which was pretty high end of, of the spectrum. Yeah, that's what happens. We have hot spells mediated by cooler spells when the breeze comes in, cools us off nicely in the evening. Important note about those high temperatures, the humidities were at the highest temperature yesterday and the day before humidity in the Dixon area was 16%. <laughs> in the Davis area, it was 18 to 20%. That's like desert, isn't it? It is. Very similar to yeah. desert conditions, yes. And so it makes a big difference, one, in the apparent heat to those of us, you know... I'm gonna get my it's mic. hot, but at least it's not muggy. Um, the, I'm going to get this mic to stay in place if it if I have to whack it. There we go. Nope, it fell down again. Okay, okay. Bend, bend that part up there and it'll work better. It's not cooperating. I'm just going to lean over. <laughs> okay. So if I appear to be fading out at times, it's because my mic is low. Um, you, we get humidities here that are so low that some people actually find them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But there's something called the Comfort Index, which you can find if you go to sites like weatherspark.com, which is an outstanding weather information resource. That'll show wherever you live when, and when you're in the Comfort Index. And generally speaking, for most people, high humidity plus high temperatures is not comfortable. No. Nope. High temperatures plus low humidity, most people can handle a lot better. And that's typically what we get here in the Sacramento Valley. Hi. When it is high temperature, the humidity is very, very low. The ET rates 
from plants' perspective, are very high, so you need to keep it close, watch on the watering. And uh, we go out of that, and the breeze comes back in. Well, the humidity is higher. It's, uh, it's, it's much, not hot. It's not hot. That's right. It's not that high. So. No, no. I mean, the humidity, when you say the midi- humidity is higher. Higher. 40% instead yeah. of 20%. Even, yeah, okay. Yeah, we drop down to around 30% typically here in the afternoon on a summer uh-huh. day. So, yeah, yeah. so we tend to be more comfortable unless you just can't stand high temperatures. And then when it rains in the winter, it's cold. Yeah, we don't get rain in the summer here. Nope. <laughs> we got rain in May, and it confused the heck out of everybody in this area. Including the plants. <laughs> yes, we, uh, the, the article that I wrote for about May just actually came out in this week's Enterprise. So if you want to read about the impact of the nearly three weeks of well below average temperatures, significantly higher than average rainfall that we get here, go to the Davis Enterprise site, and you can the first few articles are free. You, can, you don't have to have an account. If you live locally, you should have a subscription. But if you're out of the area, you want to know what it is Lois and I are experiencing on a regular basis. <laughs> this describes how unusual it was for us to have nearly three inches of rainfall in the month of May. We normally get about a half an inch. We rarely get rainfall late in the month, and most of this happened late in the month. The three, almost four days straight where it rained or was overcast led to all kinds of disease problems. They're discussed in great detail in that article. Kinds of things that you folks in rainier climates deal with all the time were taking gardeners out here by surprise. And now, this hot weather that came in, came in on a north wind. It dried everything out. Took care of all those problems. That's right. All that leaf drop on the pears. Oh, that was last week's problem. So, in fact, as we like to say on the show, today's weather is next week's problem. So yesterday's weather, I should be more more accurate. The heat wave we had for the last two to three days. I'm already seeing some leaf scorch symptoms Mm -hmm. uh, on my own pear trees, which were on the edge of my orchard. I'm talking about fruiting pears now. Uh, that hadn't I hadn't run that line yet because most of the other fruit trees on the line were fine. The line? So you mean the water? The drip line, sorry, ah. the irrigation line, which got peaches and plums and on one end is apples and pears and things. They need more water, and they actually dried out a little beyond where they should have, and so they leave scorched. That's mm-hmm. not going to be that harmful to the tree, but it's a good example to my own staff of what we're probably going to be looking at for the next oh, five to seven days as people come in with young peppers that were developing on the plants that are burnt looking on the west side. Well, they literally are. It's a scorch symptom, mm-hmm. and you might as well just pick those off. But in the case of the leaves and my pear trees, they'll be fine. So if one had not wanted to have your pear trees go through that poor thing... <laughs> one should have watered one, them. One should have watered them. <laughs> yes. Now, here's the question. We knew the heat and the, the wind was coming. Yes, How we far did. ahead? Yes, we knew that, didn't How we? How far ahead? <laughs> I like to, if I if I read that we're having a heat wave coming, uh-huh. I like to water the day before it hits or just before okay. the north wind comes in. That's my preference to give a really good soaking going into a hot spell because mm-hmm. then I know and I mean a really good soaking means giving a, you know the equivalent of a couple inches of of water more than usual. Yeah, I'm a little more than usual a good long soak. This might be the time to turn on the system, flush it out, let it run for several hours to make sure it's distributing well and that would have gotten the root zone that probably would have prevented that problem. Yeah. Well, you know. No, no, does it? Literally, literally does, does, does the fact that the tree has moisture available mean that the leaves don't burn? It would have reduced it, yeah. It would have okay. minim, minim, minimized the problem. You know what they say about the cobbler's children and their shoes? No, no actually, I've never met a cobbler. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, we got some questions. Let's talk about what's happening at the Arboretum, first of all. Uh, what is happening at the Arboretum? Well, well there, there's plants there June, all the time, and you can just go and walk over there and that's true. see everything. And we could, we could just do that. Do that. You can do that anytime, yeah, seven anytime. days a week, 24 hours a day. Take a flashlight at night. Camp Shakespeare is coming up at the Arboretum July 8th through August 2nd, 2019, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Campers, 
we'll explore two productions from DSF's 2019 season, The Tenth Muse and The Comedy of Errors. Through theater games, acting workshops, and a culminating show, campers will sharpen their performance skills while having a blast. July 8th through August 2nd, 2019, that's six hours each, well, not each day, but certain days during there. It's held down at the Arboretum Gazebo. If you're in the Arboretum at the West End, that's what those people are doing. For event details, location map, and more information, you can always go to arboretum.ucdavis.edu. And, and just so you know, when he's saying campers, he means participants in this particular yes. camp. And the participation <laughs> happens in the daytime. There are no overnight camping ever. In the and, Arboretum, and, correct. And yes. the Arboretum or yes. any place on campus. So don't figure that you can go over there and just camp. No, no, you that's not get, what he's talking you about. You might get rousted out, yes. Well, uh, yeah. Let me hand you this. These are things that have Good. come he our way. And, and then uh, he's got this box. You should open that. Yeah, take a look at that. And tell me what you think those are. Oh, you've got, you've got, okay. So so there's some clusters of berries that are blue mm-hmm. and green. Look a lot like huckleberries to me. Maybe blueberries. Those are blueberries. A little, they're small, but that's okay. There's two it's different kinds there. Yep. Oh, there is. Oh, I see a big one. There's a big mm-hmm. one. And then the other one is a long, probably the length of my little finger. In fact, yep. it's the size and shape of my little finger, but it is purple and okay, You can eat the whole squippy, thing. It is, it is safe to put the whole thing in your mouth and, and chew it And it is up. mulberries. It's a mulberry. That's a Pakistan mulberry. This is one of the easiest ones to harvest. Most of my mulberries, I would have trouble bringing in for you to sample. Because, because they get so squishy. When yeah, just, yeah, just picking them is a messy operation. Wow. This is the this Pakistan is mulberry. It's sweet. People who eat it have very differing reactions because it looks sort of like a blackberry. So mm-hmm. whenever someone eats a mulberry, they're looking at it going, well, this will have a certain balance of acid to sweetness. There's no acidity to mulberries. They're all sweet. They're mild-flavored to most people's taste for that reason, although they're very, very sweet. What I like about this one, the Pakistan mulberry, is that you can pick the fruit without getting everything all over you. It doesn't burst its juice vesicles and cause staining on your fingers. And uh, they, like most mulberries, they ripen over several weeks on the tree. I've been picking these for about two weeks now, and there's hundreds more where those came from. Very, very, very easy to grow mulberries, um, at least on the West Coast, and I have to assume they're pretty easy to grow elsewhere. Um, and and he said you can eat the whole thing, but well, what I've been stem. doing yeah. is I've been holding it on the stem, putting it in my mouth, and then scraping all the the uh, the stuff off with my teeth, and I end up with this little tiny stem. Yeah, there is a stem the that, that comes out. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of mulberries. This is a fruit that is never as popular as all the other fruit trees that we sell, but in some ways it should be because it's really, really easy to grow mulberries. There are very few pester disease problems on mulberries. The they biggest, don't ship well. No, they don't. They're just bringing them in like this. So this particular one, the Pakistan mulberry, holds up pretty well. Most of the others, you just go stand there by the tree and eat them, and you don't wear clothes that you care about because they just they stain everything. They do draw birds Oops. to the garden, and that's your biggest issue typically is sharing them with the birds, or if you wish not to do that, it can be quite a challenge. So uh, mulberries can be very easy to grow. If you happen to want to grow plants for wildlife, they're great choices for that. Some of them are huge trees, so it would take a lot of pruning to keep the fruit within reach. Some are very, very slow growing. What I call the black mulberry, I originally used to call it the Russian mulberry because that's the name that was on it when we first sold them. A customer from Russia who said, we do not have this mulberry in Russia, so I don't know where that name came Mm -hmm. to be applied to it. But uh, it's very juicy, uh, and it grows very slowly. It can be kept as a bush. In fact, one of our growers we used to grow buy from, Ellie Cook Company, would actually bud them low 
graft them low like a bush. So you could have a mulberry bush, like the nursery mulberry rhyme. Bush. And you could actually walk up and pick the fruit at ground level, and you could cover it over if you wanted to protect it from birds. More traditionally, they're grown as trees, and then you just have to, you know, fight the birds for them. Or share. Or share, or just be sure to put them where you don't mind the fruit litter and what you might call and the bird litter. What you might call the bird litter, yes, yeah. that goes along with mulberries. So, yeah. but they're a great way to draw birds to the garden if that's your main purpose. And some of them are very, very tasty. The blueberries that are in there that they're, I brought over—they're very sharp. They're not are, sweet at all. Those are sharp blue is the name of that one, oh. and that's a northern high bush. I don't think um, they're ripe. Those are fully ripe. And then this is a southern high bush blueberry right mm-hmm. there, which is much larger. And the southern high bush are the it ones that has more we, blueberry favor, but it's also very sharp. These are the ones that we're traditionally selling here in the valley and all throughout California. The northern high bush are not the the ones ordinarily grown in California or hot desert areas or they in the south. They need more cold, don't they? They need a lot of chilling. Yeah. You will find a couple of varieties like sharp blue, which will do well almost anywhere in northern California. And there are varieties of southern high bush blueberries that will grow anywhere in California. There's one called sunshine blue that only needs 100 chilling hours. Uh-huh. You can grow that in San Diego County. In effect, they are doing that. So if you're looking for blueberries and you've always thought they're hard to grow, I think that all of that applies to the northern high bush. Southern mm-hmm. high bush blueberries, yes, you want to try to adjust the pH. We'll talk more about that. Yes, they need lots of moisture. They're not drought tolerant mm-hmm. at all. I'm getting bowls and bowls of blueberries from these five plants that I have in full sun with a watering system that I run about every three days, and I'm getting more than almost more than I know what to do with. I say almost because, you know, we're finding uses for them. Uh, some people like them on the tart end. Some people like them all the way soft, sweet. But they're actually proving to be very easy to grow. So I think that blueberries got a little bit of a bum rap because of the kind that we the first people tried to grow years ago. Well, people that, moving from the Midwest would yeah, have brought the high bush. I want these northern high bush blueberries I grew up with in Michigan or whatever, and now the southern high bush blueberries are really quite easy to grow. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, they, they always describe them as being acid-loving, and first thing someone is going to surely say if you post on a blog or a Facebook page about blueberries, well, you need to get the pH to 4.5. I haven't anywhere near that. I can't even begin to approximate that. Mm-hmm. I added sulfur when I planted them, and I do continue to add sulfur. But they're not that fussy. It's just not that they're just not that difficult as as the perspe- perception is out there. Mm. Okay, that's your sample snack for today. But, but but my question is, you you he brought me whole clumps of things, mm-hmm. and why did you cut off the green ones? They're well, never going to ripen. No, that they? was to show my staff actually how they grow uh, oh, because okay. people don't really know the way blueberries grow. A blueberry looks kind of like a. The, the plant looks is like, like a manzanita. Well, sort of, yeah. It's, it's related. The uh, the size and shape is like a rose bush. If you want to compare it to something familiar, uh, three to five foot range, depending on the type you get. Containers have been my best way to go on them because I can control the soil. They do like a kind of a rich organic soil. I think the two keys to success on blueberries here in the valley and also in interior Southern California and probably throughout the Bay Area. First of all, choose the right kind. The ones that are being sold in California are the ones you should grow. Don't don't buy mail order northern high bush blueberries in general. You're going to want southern high bush. Have organic material breaking down into their roots all the time. Mulch them with something. Mulch them with something that makes them that keeps the soil enriched and adds nitrogen gradually that way and uh, keeps a, keeps the soil moist. That's an important part. Never let them be drought stressed. And in my case, I have a micro spray system, which is one of those little drip lines. It has a riser and it sprays water out in about a four foot, five foot radius. But it's very fine spray, very little water at a time compared right, so to the ka-chunk, ka-chunk. 
Right. So you need to run it for a long time to yeah. get a good soaking. But what I do find is that I can run it for, it doesn't take that long to give a good soaking to the container plants. Mm-hmm. It's spraying past them. So every place that it's spraying past them, I've planted strawberries. That's great. And they're doing fine. I mean, I just, I just make use of the extra water for other things. Mm-hmm. And then when it's really hot or windy, I just turn it on mainly to keep them moist and to keep them from drying out. That's really been the key thing. Mine are in full sun. So are the farms locally that are growing blueberries, full sun. Uh, that They don't need shade. They'll be perhaps easier to water if you have them in a little shade, but they won't but yield. But they won't be as sweet. They won't yield as well. Yeah, they yeah. Won't get, your yields won't be there. So my experience with them has been full sun is fine, but don't ever let them get drought stressed. And then the other thing is they are known to be sensitive to nitrate fertilizers. And so the general rule would be to feed them with either an organic fertilizer or carefully choose your conventional fertilizer. The simplest is just to just use go organic. just to use an organic yeah. fertilizer. And in fact, what I do is I mix the fertilizer with the compost and the fine bark that I'm putting on top of them, right in the containers. I just mulch them in the containers, and that seems to feed them just fine. Because so. mm-hmm. the water will trickle it down? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I gave you homework. Did you do it? I can't remember what the homework was. What was it? <laughs> what did you tell me I to do? I want a scientific discussion about why um, some things will grow in, in hard water and some things won't. Oh, well, yeah. So LPH is the biggest issue. And uh, yes, this blueberries are a really good example, actually. We used to, none of us in the, in the Davis Woodland area used to sell blueberries at all, or for that matter, sell azaleas or camellias or things like that, because we had water that was not only alkaline, that is, say, high pH, but also had a lot of dissolved salts in it. And those salts in the water would be continuously all summer long. Remember, we are in a place where there's no rainfall from generally early May until generally about the end of October. So anything that's growing here that isn't a great big woody tree with its roots very deep, we're providing almost all of the water that uses during the course of the summer. And in the past, all that water here was coming out of wells, and it was full of calcium and borax and manganese and a bunch of other things, salts of various types that would go into the soil and would mineralize with micronutrients that were there and make them unavailable to those types of plants. We talk about soil pH. We talk about plants needing acidic soil or alkaline soil. The plant doesn't care what the pH is. The pH itself isn't actually relevant. I hate to say that because I know a lot of people are, are fixated on it. It's a marker, though. It's a proxy is the term you might use. The plant doesn't care what the level of hydrogen or hydroxyl ions is in the soil around it. Which is what pH is. That's what it's measuring, right? What it, what it cares about, if well, it's not anthropomorphized, but its ability to take up micronutrients is impeded if there's certain range of pH causing those nutrients to be mineralized in a form the plant can't take up. Okay. In now, s- hold on. In some cases, these are plants that evolved in areas where there's constant organic material coming onto the soil, or there's a lot of rainfall, so micronutrients are in poor availability to begin with. So in some cases, like blueberries or azaleas, just to name a couple, they have really fine roots that explore out and which are sensitive to drying out. So that's one of the first things right there. These are plants that are often not suitable to the valley for that reason right there. They also have grown in association with mycorrhiza which are soil organisms that live on or in the root that greatly expand the root's uh, surface area, if you will, functional surface area for taking up micronutrients. And so those are really important to the plant. They tend to grow in a certain range of soil pH. 
they tend to grow in a certain range of soil organic material, and they tend to grow in a certain range of soil moisture, none of which we typically have here. So we're taking these plants from woodland areas where leaf drop is common and organic material is breaking down all the time, and those particular mycorrhizae would be existing in the soil naturally, and we're putting them in mineral soils in a hot, dry climate where leaves don't fall on the ground because there aren't that many trees naturally here, and where those mycorrhizae would not be present in the first place. So all of those things added together mean that the plant has more difficulty taking up certain micronutrients. And if the pH is high because of uh, the presence, and there's all these salts in the soil as well, it's even more difficult for them to take them up. So the most common symptom we see is late season, late summer, the end of the irrigation season, the plants show iron deficiency, or they'll show magnesium deficiency, or zinc deficiency, which is harder to diagnose, but it's something that people do are aware of. And that's because all summer long we were watering with this hard water that was not only high pH but full of salts. Okay. So it's, it's blocking the uptake of the micronutrients. Of those particular micronutrients. And people mm-hmm. run out and they want to buy iron and zinc and manganese and magnesium and all those things because they think they need to correct that. You go online and uh, you see, oh, this is a classic iron deficiency. Well, it's not that we don't have the iron in the soil. It's there. It's just in a form that the plant can't take it up, or there's nothing helping the plant, facilitating the plant's ability to take it up by those mycorrhiza. So, so I was right to say when you plant blueberries, you want to take them from an established thing and put some of the, own, oh, the soil with it. Well, the, we just had a guy walk in and ask if we, what form of mycorrhiza we sell. I don't sell mycorrhiza. Yeah. I don't sell it straight. I, I am missing a significant retail opportunity by doing this. I could just keep my mouth shut and sell it to everybody who wants it. It's in our fertilizers if you want it. I mean, they've added it to all of the fertilizers we buy, the organic ones. But is ones. it the it's right a, one? Well, that's a very good question. I know that blueberries have a specific... That well, was, okay. The, the folklore that I learned back in Michigan, which i got to tell you, is high blueberry country. Yes. And we're not talking about these weird high bush things. We're talking about the little ankle-high low things. Low bush blueberries. The yep. kind of bears eat, Northern you know? <laughs> they did, are did so you have, Did good. you have bears in your, in your backyard oh, yeah. eating not the blueberries? Not in our backyard. Okay. Because okay. we didn't have blueberries in the backyard. Okay. They were out in the forest. In, the, in, the, in the, the, the little open spots in the forest, Get wherever there was sun. Stay out of the blueberries or the bears will get you. No, stop that, Don. <laughs> but what, what I heard from all the people who had gardens is if you want to have blueberries in your backyard, you not only go and get a, a blueberry seed and plant it, or mm-hmm. you just go and you get a bush, but you've got to make sure you take the soil because right. the soil was part of the ecosystem, if you will, of mm-hmm. that blueberry plant. So the so, question is, so, if you took that mycorrhiza from Michigan, brought it down here to the Sacramento Valley, and put it in the ground around your blueberry, would it even survive? Because I'd have my, to really get it. Mycorrhiza needs, warm. also mm-hmm. has specific Water. conditions that it wants. So yeah. uh, we don't think adding mycorrhiza is actually uh, effective in almost any case. I hate to say that because, boy, these are being sold like crazy right now to, to you know for every different crop you can think of, including, but they're including the one that just recently became legal. They are different. And so, for example, we order fertilizers from E.B. Stone and Sun Company. And uh, way back when mycorrhiza was a big research area in the 1990s, they decided to add mycorrhiza to all of their organic fertilizers. Okay. If you look on the side of the bag, they list them all. There's several of them in there. Yeah, one or two several of them. Several mycorrhiza. Several different species. Uh, okay. Probably as many as a dozen. They figured out were the ones most likely to be useful in the widest range of conditions. I remember at the time, the one that they did not add them to 
was their fertilizer for, quote, acid-loving plants, azaleas, camellias, blueberries, things like that. And the reason they didn't was that they didn't think it would work. The research suggested that that would not, there would be a little point in that. Uh, yeah. They now do add it to those fertilizers, and perhaps they either decided that it would or decided that, that people were people wanting it, it anyway. so just do it anyway. Right. There is some question about whether adding mycorrhizae to your soil will make any difference. If they're necessary, they're already present, okay? What, Almost, do, you mean, what do you mean if they're necessary? If, they're... Uh, there are already mycorrhizae in your soil. If wherever you're listening, unless something really weird was done to your soil, there are native established species of soil mycorrhiza there that will colonize the roots both inside and outside and make them more effective. Uh, whether they're exactly the right ones, we don't know, but time will tell. If you plant blueberries and they work in your area, then it looks like you had either the right one or, or a suitable substitute. There's even some suggestion that if you added foreign mycorrhiza to the soil, or, or we shouldn't be adding non-native soil organisms to soil. Yeah, uh, there's some sense. questions about that. I mean, there's, there's a whole other field of research on that. So the best bet is if you really want them, they're in fertilizers. It's doubtful whether they make much difference. What is in the soil will probably work. And so just create conditions that are suitable for them. Steady input of organic material from above. Plenty of moisture for the ones that need that. And sure, go ahead and lower the pH because that probably is a factor for some of them, especially the ones for things like blueberries. So standard advice is to add a couple of cups of soil sulfur in the backfill around the roots when you plant your blueberries. Throw if some, you're planting them in the ground. Or in a pot. And, and every season, every spring, every fall, both if you prefer, throw some more on the surface, mix it with compost to make it more rapidly available to the plant and try to mediate, mitigate the pH that way. But be aware that when you see these very specific ranges of soil pH for plants, particularly like garden vegetables, you'll see these charts that say tomatoes need 5.8 to 6.8. Hey, ours is over seven here, and We're they doing fine. and they do We're fine. I don't tomato know any, capital of the world. I don't know of any farmer that incorporates soil sulfur in order to grow tomatoes in Yellow County, and it's one of the leading crops in the county. So the range is actually much wider than than what those old charts will tell you. And home gardeners rarely need to worry about soil pH. Home gardeners rarely need to add soil mycorrhiza. It doesn't hurt if you do. Probably doesn't help. Uh, so I'm not against it or for it. I just think you're probably wasting your money. And it's better, in my opinion, for plants that come from regions of high rainfall and high organic content in the soil to add plenty of moisture and organic material mm-hmm. on the surface. Just keep top dressing. And yes, even in containers, go ahead and mulch containers. I just took very fine bark, some of the compost that we sell, and I had some organic fertilizer. I think it was cottonseed meal. That's somewhat acidic. So I added some of that, and I just put about a half an inch to an inch on top of all the containers that I'm growing regular berries and blueberries in. It mm-hmm. helps keep the roots moist. I figured I'd do it right before hot weather. I did them a favor. It didn't do the pear any favor, but I did them a favor, <laughs> <laughs> and I've given them plenty of water. So uh, it was working for us, and I would just say don't fixate too much on soil chemistry. I get very concerned when people come in. They're looking for a very specific soil chemistry product. I'm looking for magnesium sulfate, or I'm looking for this, that, or the other. Just create a healthy soil environment. And the soil mycorrhiza that are there will probably do the job for you. Okay. Well, I answered Some a whole them. bunch of my questions. But okay. But still, I'm back to the first one I started with. Why does this bush out here, whatever mm-hmm. that is. That's a lantana. Why does that lantana happy with the water we've got and that blueberry bush is not? What's it's- the difference in the physical structure It isn't. It's a difference in where they evolved and what they evolved with. So a good example, totally other end of the spectrum, is plants from Australia and South Africa. 
And it's known that Rustios, I don't know if you know what those are, nope. and Proteas. I know those. And Grevilleas uh-huh. uh, it come from areas where there are unique soil conditions. Grevilleas and Proteas in particular, if I recall, come from areas where phosphorus is extremely deficient. So they evolved in a unique ability to extract phosphorus from very phosphorus-poor soils. They have roots that are very, very able to take up phosphorus where it's very limited. So if you put on phosphorus, you'll burn them. We absolutely do not want to add high phosphate fertilizers, high bloom fertilizers when we plant proteas or grevilleas or certain other plants from Australia, South Africa. If you learn about where they're from, you'll see, oh, this is an area with unique mineral soils that have the following characteristics. And those plants evolved an ability to take up phosphorus from soils that are very, very, very low in it. Therefore, they're very sensitive to phosphorus. And uh, one of the first, uh, Grevilleas were introduced into the nursery trade in California in the 1970s. And in the 1980s, we opened in 1981, we're all selling Grevilleas and people are just getting chronic late season anemia, They're meaning they're really yellow, they look really sickly. Everyone was planting them with starter fertilizer. We all mm. sold starter fertilizer mm-hmm. as a standard thing back then. Mm-hmm. They were being grown for their flowers. So we'd say, here, add some bloom food to these. All of that and was putting in minerals that were burning the plant. We were adding phosphorus. Now, the phosphorus in the, around the roots was the worst of all because they would just fry those poor little root hairs, which were adapted to areas, came from, evolved in areas where phosphorus was very, very deficient. So you had to be cautious about over-applying it. Likewise, blueberries are very sensitive to nitrate fertilizers. Uh, they, where they come from, it's constant breakdown of organic material. Uniquely, blueberries can take up ammonia form of nitrogen, for those of you who are into soil science stuff. Mostly the only plants that take up ammonia form of nitrogen are grasses, monocots. Mm-hmm. We'll tell you, you can feed your lawn with ammonia, but um, everything else needs nitrate. It has to break down from ammonia to nitrate. Well, blueberries, if you apply nitrate, you'll fry them. Mm-hmm. One of the simplest ways to burn a, a blueberry is to take a conventional Don't fertilize conventional it. fertilizer that's got 1% or 2% nitrate and feed them with that and they'll burn. And it's, it's very difficult to explain to people. This is an unusual case of a plant that evolved in an area where it would almost never be exposed to nitrate fertilizer. So it was very good at trying to get that out. Yeah. And so if it gets it out, it's getting too much. Right. So if you're good at using ammonium sulfate, uh, fine, you could use that. Now, it's pretty easy to overdo that. And there's some caveats that I would have about selling people direct sources of ammonia. Farmers in the area use it, by the way. Now, if you ever noticed that, those big old tanks of things that are right next to the field, that's just metering straight liquid nitrogen ammonia, uh, farm-grade ammonia into the irrigation water. I don't really want home gardeners doing that. I'd much rather have you just use an organic fertilizer that will break down at the pace that the plant needs it. Okay. So I'm hearing that I am never going to get from you the actual physiology of things. And the answer is, it doesn't matter why. (laughs) What matters (laughs) is which ones... Uh, need what? It's the structure and of the root hairs and the things that are around it, if that's the question you're and asking. And so our, our non-professional thing is to figure out where plants came from to see whether or not they can adapt to where we live. Well, it's, what's the, it's the ions that are exchanging in the root zone, the way the root hairs react to it, the mycorrhizae that expand the ability yeah, no, of the no, root I'm, 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 okay, That's the physiology yeah, of it, so okay. to answer your question. But, but to the answer... To the answer the question of, that I would have asked or should have asked, which is, <laughs> how do I know what to plant? And the answer is, where did it come from? That's a good start. You know, if, if we don't know, back when people first imported orchids, for example, a little digression here, but it's worth a, a detour. 
they didn't know how to grow particular orchids. And there were a lot of failures on the first very expensive orchids that were imported from Bangkok, Thailand, for example, to London. And uh, the reason was that people assumed that they all needed hot, steamy conditions because that's what they were in Bangkok, Thailand. And it was quickly realized that many of these orchids were being brought down from the mountains, mm-hmm. maybe way, way higher, cooler conditions or very different conditions. So most of the orchid books that my grandfather gave me when I was a, a young teenager first getting interested in orchids would describe where they came from. That That's was the first thing you needed to know was where did this, is it a high altitude or a lower altitude? Uh, does, it, does it want cooler conditions at night or even conditions all the time like you get more in tropical regions? So knowing where they come from is mm-hmm. a good starting point. There was a... Uh, teacher at my high school, Mr. Lemke, who, and my high school was in Anderson, California, and he went and he discovered orchids in Shasta County. We do have orchids, yes. Yeah, we have, nor- actually there's orchids on every continent except Antarctica. Catered alert, Roger Kunkel, Calvin Handy, Hot Pursuit, and Didar Singh Kalsa will play a fundraiser for KDRT, which was postponed from the rain. Remember the rain in May? Mm-hmm. Well, this is what was going to do that. They were going to do this back then. Well, they postponed it until Thursday. June 20th at Sophia's Thai Kitchen on E Street at 2nd Street in downtown Davis. Begins at 8 p.m. That's a fundraiser for KDRT, Sophia's Thai Kitchen, E Street, 2nd Street, Thursday, June 20th at 8 p.m. More information at kdirt.org. Hey, do you like to make pancakes? I do. Well, on Sunday morning... You can listen to music to make pancakes, too. I can make pancakes on Sunday morning? Well, you, any day, but if you want to listen to music, well, you do. Keep the radio tuned to 95.7 <laughs> and heat the skillet to 420. DJ Presto Pancakes will be flipping records while you flip your cakes. Psych, soul, and funk are on the platter. It's music to make pancakes, too. Sunday mornings, 11 a.m. to 12 noon, only on KDRT. For replay times, visit kdrt.org and click the Schedule tab. And if you want to have pancakes some other day, remember, we archive all our shows. And you, you can go. just go over there and listen to an archive. So Yolo Farm to Fork brings together farmers, families, individuals, and communities to focus on the benefits of healthy life choices, including eating fresh and locally grown food. Farm to Fork works to educate the public, especially children, about the value of our environment and farm-to-table food systems. For more information or to get involved, call 530-302-5795 or visit... YOLOFARMTOFORK.ORG Okay, so we have Drew from Sterling Heights in Michigan yep. saying, Dan, on a recent show you mentioned that removing tomato suckers does not increase production. Correct. In the fig community, I never knew there was a fig community. Drew is in hmm. the fig community in Michigan. In the fig community, many believe that pinching figs after five nodes increases fruiting. Do you know of any studies that show such a th- thing for any fruiting plant? What is your opinion? A written response would be great so I can relay info quickly. Any directions to look for such info would be helpful as you know so much fault. False info is presented on the net. <laughs> info with sources is always welcome. You will be helping hundreds, if not thousands, of fig growers with any information, even on other plants. Any help in this matter appreciated? I know your time is valuable, as is mine. I will research myself. Just looking for help here. I did send Drew an answer, but what it really comes down to is uh, he asked about, for not just for figs, but any other plant. It depends on what the plant is and where it comes from. Interestingly, good segue there. So uh, those of us here in California who grow figs, and I'm not trying to gloat, 
but figs would basically be considered invasive plants in this area if they weren't a food crop. Okay, mm-hmm. Figs grow so easily here that there are three of them on my property that have been there since the 1930s that I have personally not irrigated since the 1980s. So they live on winter rainfall only. They may be eking some water out of orchard tree watering that's happening about 100 feet away. But basically, they live on natural California Mediterranean rainfall cycle, which is wet winter, dry summer. And they produce thousands, thousands, thousands of fruit. I have one in my backyard. I have to prune so severely just to be able to reach a quarter of the fruit. So this is an area where figs do very well. And in our area, as you know, if you grow figs and if you've researched them at all, they produce a breba crop, spring crop, small crop that's on last year's wood, which is what we would call new wood, but let's not even get into that. And then the larger crop, the summer and fall crop, which I usually start picking in August, late August, and continue September into October, is coming on new growth. My understanding from having read about it and from what I remember from taking classes years ago and my own observation is that the best fruit production is on sort of the semi-hardwood growth a little further down on those shoots that are growing vigorously. If you pinch the growth of a subtropical plant, you're going to stimulate it to branch and grow more. In late summer, we is tell you... Is fig a subtropical plant? Technically, it's a Mediterranean plant that functions like a subtropical, okay. yeah. So anytime you... Pr- now, if, if, we, if you're listening to us in the summer, say August, I'll start to say, this is a great time to do summer pruning of your fruit trees, such as your peaches, nectarines, plums, apricots, cherries, uh, pluots, apriums, things like that. He the, didn't name figs? No, the conventional uh, stone fruits and palm fruits, which are what we call temperate zone plants. They come from regions where they go through a normal growth and dormancy cycle. And well, figs do lose their leaves in the winter. Have you ever watched them? It's not really like turning nice color and dropping leaves. They just look like something's going wrong and eventually they drop their leaves. So um, these other ones have an actual period before the dormant period, which we call the quiescent period. Your peach grows and flowers and puts on vigorous growth, May, June, July. Your fruits are done, it's harvested, they're done. They don't grow anymore at that point. And if you the leaves them, are still there, they're right. still green, they're storing up things. They're making buds for next year, but they're not expanding. They're not growing anymore. No more new growth is occurring. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. So if you prune them at that point, what we call summer pruning on those fruit trees, you're intentionally stunting the tree. You're actually intentionally cutting them back to reduce the total size of the tree. You're doing it for size control. You're doing it to reduce the fruit load the following year. But the plant isn't going to respond to your pruning by putting on new growth. It's entered its quiescent period. Sometimes, when I do it a little early, I, last time I did this, I did my neck to plum in late July, and oops, oops, some growth came on. All right, well, big deal. It didn't really hurt. But it was. if we do it in August, no, it won't. And so not only do you reduce the leaf area, and thereby reduce the water demand of the tree, you're, keeping, you're doing the size control. And I now do most of my pruning on my fruit trees in the late summer. If you do that to a fig... It's a subtropical slash Mediterranean plant. They'll just think, oh, you've pinched my growing tip. I'll branch and grow some more. And they also continue to initiate fruit on that new growth as it's growing a little further down on it. My experience with that is that it's still doing that even in October, okay? Mm -hmm. And those don't have time to ripen or develop properly in Northern California. So most places where you might be listening, it's a high likelihood that if you pinch them, you'll get bushiness. You'll get more fruit set, but a significant percentage of that fruit will not be able to fully ripen to good quality or even edible status. So I would guess overall yield is not increased. And what you're doing is you're taking away energy. This is just the basic physiology of the tree. When Every fruit is a sink 
from an energy standpoint. And you want as much of that sink to go to ones you're actually going to eat rather than the ones that are just going to barely be expanding when cold weather finally comes along. So you're wasting energy by putting it into fruit that will not develop properly. So in my opinion, this advice is not merited unless you're listening or growing figs in a truly subtropical frost-free area where a fig could even ripen into, say, December. And that's not the case for us here and certainly not for Drew in Michigan. Okay, so from hearing what you're saying there, I'm envisioning a, uh, a fig tree, the, this year's growth, a vigorous stem or twig or whatever, shoot, that's what you're calling it, a shoot. Sure. And the, the figs that are developing further down the shoot have had longer time to be there, so they're going to be riper and, and everything. fully expand so and develop if, the sugars. if yeah. I looked at that shoot and instead of cutting it, which I know would make new growth. What about if I I went up near the top and I took off all the little baby fruits yeah. that were up there? Would that put more energy into the rema- remaining fruits? Would it trigger at least more in, growth? At least in theory, yes, it would. It would redirect the energy to the fruit that's developing. But it and wouldn't so, trigger more um, side shoots. No, not removing fruit doesn't do that. No, but so it, that if you, might be that might something. be worthwhile. And, yeah. and the, what they're looking for is higher yield. And I don't think you're going to get higher yield by pinching the growth. But you might get bigger uh, fruit. You would get bigger fruit. Yes, you probably improve the fruit size by pinching off the extra fruit. That's my best guess. Now, and I'm, if you're in Michigan, you th- those well, little is. baby fruits no. are not going to make it. No, they didn't know the ones that set in October don't even make it here. Now, Drew is on a fig forum, and there's fig you know fig people there from all over the world. So I'm sure there's people in say. Southern California, you know, where they're never going to see a frost or even get, you know, close to, or, or might get close, but not that much. Or down at the equator? Places where, like, <laughs> Southern California had really warm weather all the way into December, and that's been happening more and more often. Well, perhaps in their case, the pinching them back and getting the bushiness will get more fruit to set and so on. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are individuals and some varieties, because there's a lot of fig varieties, there would be exceptions to this. And I'd love to hear that feedback, and I hope he gets that feedback, because I'd be happy to pass it on. Uh, my experience here is you're aiming for a really good crop in August to September, and anything that continues to ripen in October is a nice bonus. And beyond that, you know, you're asking for you're asking for trouble if it's just setting that late in the season. So I hope okay. that answer helps. Okay, and now let's expand that fig question okay. back to we started with removing tomato suckers does not increase production, and now the question is what about other plants, other fruiting plants. Yeah. Um, tomatoes, well, they don't have suckers. Tomatoes are the only ones people really seem to want to do this to for some reason. Usually it's for training. All right. And we've been through this before. Pruning tomatoes in any way reduces yield overall. Simple fact. I mean, they've experimented with that. However, market growers of tomatoes in Florida, for example, will find that if they sucker them and also uh, do some pruning on them, the first fruit that sets ripens sooner that gets them three or four times as much per pound at the farmer's market. So that's mm-hmm. great. And uh, so they get bigger fruit because they're redirecting the energy into that smaller number of fruit. So it depends on what your goal is. Mm-hmm. And for those of you in areas where you're barely able to get a tomato, you know, to set enough fruit to even ripen, you might have reasons for removing suckers that would set too late in the season. Same principle as the right. fig. Right. So that was then, what w- was us in the Upper yeah, Peninsula of Michigan. Yeah, where I you, mean, you know, where as soon as you got way too like, far north to be growing tomatoes if, properly. If you got four so. tomatoes on a bush, you, yeah. you, you, you yeah. stopped. Yep. Hey, it looks like we've got a phone call over there, Don. Oh, he's going to push the button and disconnect that. Hello, caller. Can you hear me? Hello, caller. Can you hear me? Hold on. Uh, hello. There we go. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Wonderful. And who is this, please? 
My name is Michael. Hey, Michael. Hi, Michael. What can we do for you? Well, I had a question uh, about a drip system. I just set up my drip system earlier this week, and it's watering four tomato, well, five tomato plants now, but um, and I got the two-gallon-per-hour uh, emitters. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, do I want to, I have them place the water coming out at about a half inch to an inch from the stem of the tomato. Is that right, or where is it supposed to be? That's fine. With tomatoes, I'm not concerned about the moisture being right on the stem. If it was a lavender plant or a you know, native ceanothus or something, that would concern me because you'd be increasing the risk of crown rot. But tomatoes don't care. <laughs> tomatoes, tomatoes okay, they'll good. they'll root anywhere that their their stem is touching the soil, and they're fine with that. So you're, that's actually okay. okay. Yeah, and great, great. it could and be I, five five inches away, and it would still be okay. Yep. Oh, okay, cool. That's good to know. And then I don't want to mulch right up to the stem, right? I want to leave like an inch around it. Well, actually, it's the same answer. If it were certain other kinds of plants, I'd be concerned about it. I'm much less concerned with a tomato. We drop them in deep. Uh, we bring soil right up to the stem because they have root initials ready to go anywhere that there's moisture touching them. Uh, excuse me, soil okay. touching them. So you could even mulch right up around them. That, again, also doesn't concern me with a tomato. And doesn't, um, just from experience, I haven't had any problem with peppers or eggplant or even cucumbers or that kind of thing because they'll just root right out into that soil. We want to be cautious okay. with woody plants in general of doing that. And the, the old theory, at least, was that the moisture around the stem and then the frequent irrigation you're often doing with drip just invites phytophthora because you're trapping moisture there on a hot day, and that's what you don't want to okay. do. If you're watering infrequently, then that's less of an issue. But in general, when we would do a landscape uh, and we'd put in all these woody plants and things, the last step is to bring in all the fine bark and compost and whatever and spread it out as a mulch. And the last step of the process is one person to walk around with a soft rake, kind of rake it away from the stem of the, the plants we were especially concerned about. We just did everything that way. So we were mulching the soil, not the plant, was the way I'd usually put it. We know that with coarser mulch, that's not really a huge issue because there's a lot of air trapped in there, so it's less of a problem. But I'd be least least concerned of all about a tomato plant because they will just root. Okay. Yep. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. And I yep. have one, another question about that was, I know there's no, like, specific water, like water for... 20 minutes, two times, you know, whatever, but <laughs> mm-hmm. is there a good, like, I, to start, like a good starting point, they're two gallon per hour, so I give a could tomato, I run it for an hour? Yeah, I give a tomato plant a couple gallons when I water it, uh, when it's young, on okay. the first part of the season. I want to make sure I'm not just watering the nursery soil and the, the root, the water, the soil right around it, I want to go deeper and wider. And so, well, two gallons is, one to two gallons is more than it absolutely needs right at first, that way the roots can expand out more quickly. And I do run it longer as the season goes along and less often because their roots go quite deep, you'll find, unless you've got really shallow soils for some reason. They're quite quite deep-rooted compared to, compared to your other summer vegetables. So I'd like you to run it, yeah, give a couple gallons. Give a good thorough okay. watering when you do. And then, when they're young. Yeah, and then figure out in your soil how long you can go before you do that again because that's, gonna, that's what's okay. going to vary. So. And, okay, you, yeah, and that, don't worry about being on there too long or getting it too deep because those tomato roots would love to keep going yep, down. Yep. They, they would go okay. to China if they could. <laughs> very, okay. common, very common for people to bring in pictures of their raised planters and they're having problems with them. The peppers and the eggplant and the squash are wilting and they're watering this and such and the tomato in the corner is doing great because its roots have gone through the fancy soil they put in the raised planter and found the soil below and tapped into some moisture down there. So they're surprisingly uh-huh. deep-rooted. So. 
Okay, cool. That's good to know. And yep. Can I ask you one more question about yeah. Japanese maple? Okay, totally. Uh, we yeah. got a Japanese. We got one give, given to us, and I'm going to plant it. So I was just, I'm curious. I'm going to. How exactly, you know, if you could briefly explain, how do I plant that in my they like, garden? Right into the I have I have lots of Japanese maples, and I I long ago stopped amending the soil for them based on the principle that even Japanese maples want to go into want your 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 backfill in your soil to be whatever your native soil is. So I dig a okay. proper hole, two about twice as wide as the container that is coming in, and about the same depth as the container. I take it out, okay. and I check, I check the roots carefully for circling. If they're bound up, I do pull them apart a little bit, and I spread them out. And I make sure it's up a little bit so that, you know, an inch, so that it, with settling it won't be below grade. And I backfill with the native soil, and I make a basin around them so I can give that tree a good soaking by hand uh, every three to four days during the first several weeks of hot weather. Then I mulch them, and this is the most important part of the success of my now about 15 Japanese maples, is that I have either a ground cover growing under them that's getting watered, or I have, if it isn't there yet, I have some kind of fine bark or especially compost kind of mulch around them to keep those surface roots moist, because they do have roots that dry out quickly, and it's really bad for the plant to do that. Other than that, I, have, I haven't found them difficult, but they're, they're comparable to other woody plants. It's mostly just finding the right place for them. And that's a matter of keeping them out of the very hottest sun of the day. Uh, shade of a big high tree is fine. Morning sun is fine. Uh, something like that. And a place, north side of your house is yeah, fine. Yeah, I have one on the north side. And interestingly, that got a lot of sun because it was not shaded from the west, although over mm-hmm. time that has gradually happened. The shade of my high sycamore has been ideal. And I've experimented with some in more sunlight, and they're okay as long as I really keep the water on them. So this is the main thing. They're not ever drought-tolerant plants, so they need to be in a place where you'll either keep them moist by watering them or by watering the ground cover that's under them or putting some kind of mulch to keep the soil cool. And when he says to make a uh, basin around it, you want that ridge of soil to be further away than anything you've disturbed. Yeah, a couple of feet out. So make a nice little little area that you can fill with water and know you're giving it a, a few gallons of water each time you water. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like what are the basin... Mm-hmm. What is, do I dig? Is that like a trench? Well, you do after you've dug after you've planted the tree and everything's backfilled and you've firmed it all in. I take a hoe and I just pull uh-huh. soil towards the tree to make a ridge all around it. Okay. So it's a little ridge of soil that holds the water, and so I can set a hose on there at a pretty moderate flow and fill that basin up and know I'm giving it plenty of water on the whole root zone and past that root zone. Within a couple of years, that breaks down and you're watering it differently. Older established Japanese maples on my property are on drip lines that run throughout their drip, their root zone, and that I water like almost any other normal plant. But at first, I find that they do like a lot of water during their first summer. And the reason that that basin is so helpful compared to a drip system is that the basin is is flooding an entire area. So yep. all of the roots that are down there are able to keep growing, growing out, growing down. Whereas if you just had a drip system and you just had a spot, one spot on one side, maybe one spot on the other side, well, that wouldn't be getting not. water to all of the roots and it the tree wouldn't like it. You may need, you wouldn't distribute as well. So I yeah. just like, I like to pamper them a little bit with some hand watering the first year. Hoses. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can do that. Okay. They're great trees. They're some of my favorites. I'm, uh, they're very habit forming. So it, Michael, yeah. is this the first time you've done tomatoes? I did them last year for mm-hmm. the first time. I just did cherry tomatoes last mm-hmm. year. That was a great to start yeah. with. You really can't go wrong with cherry tomatoes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It got a little, it got a little haywire because I planted 
too much in too small Oh, but place. You, you've yeah. got lots of people to give them to. There you go. You know, and if you run out yeah. of people, you can take them down to the senior center, and yeah. those seniors will just gobble them up. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So hopefully it'll be a little more tame this year. We'll Great. Thanks well, for th- calling. Thanks for calling. And let us know how your, your Japanese maple does. Maybe call us in the oh. fall. Okay. Absolutely. All, All right. right. Thanks, Michael. Bye. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Bye. Okay. So thank you for that call. And anyone else who wants to call, um, you can phone us or you can email us. And actually, email is the way That's most great. people yeah. are communicating with us these days. And Davis, the email is? DavisGardenShow at gmail.com. Yeah. And that, that means that Don can have a little chance to figure out what his answer is before we get on the air. What's that, <laughs> what's that really pretty blue flower that's growing along the roadsides and freeway right now, Lois? Oh, there's lots of the them. The one, the one, this really pretty blue flower that's growing along the roadsides and freeway right now. We do this. This is an annual event here. I think a few years ago. Are you ago, talking I, about the lupins? I, no, no, too late for them. I think I posted a picture comparing the purple flower in May and Corn the blue flower. flower in June. Cornflower. Salsify in May, chicory oh. in June. Okay. Chicory. Chicory. Is that pretty but that's cornflower. Uh, no, but that's a nice, well, that's, that's what, a pretty flower, That's what too. the common name for chicory is where I came from. Well, there's a re- this is one of the reasons there's we don't. There's a reason don't use common <laughs> well, names. Well, yeah, except I just did. Chicory is a common name, too. What, what um, it was its Latin, Latin name? Uh, Cichorium. Cichorium. No one will ever say Cichorium. Right, so chicory, chicory. which is a very pretty blue flower. And as with the salsify, it came on my property. I'm right along the freeway. And I thought, oh, that's pretty. I'll just leave it. Oh, yeah. And uh, now I have about, I'd say, about a half acre of chicory. Um, I've and decided, salsify I've together. I've decided it's time to start working on getting them off the property. So chicory is a can be used as a drink. Yeah, sure. Um, no, it is. Yeah, it is. No, and salsify is called oyster root, and yeah. it can be harvested and cooked up and eaten. Yeah. And um, Need any? Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really easy to grow. Let's put it that Don't way. Don't put them with the blueberries, though. <laughs> yeah, no, these that, are, that, these that are, wouldn't work. These, are, these are blue, uh, blue and purple flowers, which attract beneficials. I mean, that's one thing I'll say for them. You always see pollinators on them where mm-hmm. they're growing. That was one of the reasons I left them. They're both uh, wind-disseminated seeds, so that's the issue. Chicory, and, or excuse me, salsify in particular. Looks it's like, like a giant dandelion. Mm-hmm. Functions but, like but, a giant dandelion. But the umbrellas, you know, those little umbrellas on a dandelion that carry the seeds, the umbrellas on the thing are like as long as your little finger. Okay, that brings us to one that I don't know if is on here, but someone, he walked in today and he said he got a, a volunteer artichoke down here in the garden. Uh, there's a community garden down from us here. And he brought it in to me because he couldn't figure out when it was ready. I think it's heavy. I should have brought it over. You can stop by and look at it. And uh, it's very dense and it's very prickly, as artichokes can be as well. Are you and sure I said, it's an artichoke? I said, this is not an artichoke. This is a cardoon. Ah. Uh, cardoon, cardoon is in the area. Uh, some people grow them intentionally. And if you're thinking of it, let me tell you my experience. <laughs> A lady gave me four seedlings years ago and said, oh, by the way, they reseed. Just real offhand like that. And about three or four years later, three teenage boys and I removed over 200 cardoon plants from our property. And I have a picture of these teenagers, each with one machete in each hand. Trying to whack the at, things at, down. At, at dusk, going through a field of things that look like artichokes on steroids that were about seven feet tall, looking like they're about to be lost. It looked like something from the day of the Triffids, if you remember movies from mm-hmm. the 1950s. Uh, the part of the cardoon that is eaten is the mid-rib stem of the leaf. Uh, they cut that out, and they pull the strings out like you would with celery, and they saute it. Well, I did that once, and it was about as uninteresting as you can imagine. And then I realized we had a real weed problem on our hands. They're quite showy. They're a thistle. 
They're mm-hmm. a big purple thistle that's seven feet tall. That's quite spectacular. So the flowers are, are large. Purple, purple, showy, like an artichoke. If you ever let mm-hmm. an artichoke bloom, it's very pretty. Now, the thing about thistles, they're wind-disseminated seeds. And mm-hmm. uh, so that, that 200 seedlings that I got rid of, we did fine. And about a year later, I'm rounding the corner, and I see that there's a half a mile away at one front of one of my neighbor's houses a nice, healthy cardoon plant that I had personally been responsible for. Did was, you go cut it down for them? I was going to go knock on the door, but I noticed shortly thereafter that he used something on it that pretty well obliterated it. <laughs> Some sort of chemical <laughs> took care of the work. problem yeah, thoroughly. All right, yeah. quick time okay, for one more so, quick question um, here. Uh, Laura Lee from the Santa Cruz Mountains says, I'm a new gardener here with a diseased pea question. My sugar snap peas and snow peas have developed a disease starting at the base of the plant, affecting the leaves and moving up to the new growth. Pinpoint brown spots, many per leaf, leading to yellowing of the effective leaves. See the included pictures. Thank yep, you. Very good picture. Um, I think I've identified it as Septoria leaf spot, probably a result of the weirdly cool wet May weather we had. Mm-hmm. I was planning on using this bed for my tomato seedlings and was going to make the switch later this week. But is this disease that will linger and attack my tomatoes as well? How can I prevent this disease, or does it particular a particular raised bed need to be unused for years, etc.? Um, I don't think that's septoria. I think it's a different fungal leaf spot. I did a little research at ipm.ucdavis.edu, and I came up with ascochyta, ascochyta, ascochyta blight. (laughs) Okay? Uh, It's a fungal leaf spot. And good news, the key question I have in something like this, is it host-specific? That is, is this something that will just grow on peas and related things to peas? Peas, beans, other legumes. Or is it something that could transmit over to a totally unrelated thing like a tomato? I'm reasonably certain, without looking at your sample and without taking it to an extension person for a full diagnosis, that what you have there is host-specific to peas. Mm, or that's things, a good, that's that's a good, good. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the problem don't will be... Don't plant peas there. Don't plant peas there immediately following. Pull all the stuff out. Probably a good idea to rotate away from that spot because of any debris that might overwinter, or I mean over summer till next fall. If you were to plant peas there in the fall and you still had it some might debris, it might yeah. still be there. But the good news is, no, I don't think that will affect your tomatoes. Very good picture when you have questions about pest problems like that. It's always good to send a photograph to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. What's coming up on your show? Well, I'm going to do a retrospective. I've got a whole bunch of CDs of things that I have played in the past on my show, and I'm going to take cuts off of them and tell people when that show was so that they can go and listen to the archives. So archives of Lois coming archives up on That's Life at that's 1 p.m. Yes, Thanks is. for listening.